see you. Good to be back uh, with you. And whether you're joining us here in the worship center, out on the patio, or uh, online, just good to be together. Uh, we're going to be going into our time of teaching right now. If we haven't met yet, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here and looking really forward to this time in the Word. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, got your note sheets, uh, let's go ahead and open up and uh, get ready to go. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here at the start of another weekend. Just to, a weekend we're going to be pursuing you as a church all weekend long, uh, gathering around your word. Some of us on homes, some of us on boats, some of us at parks, some out in the patio, some here uh, with us in the worship center. But throughout this weekend, we're going to be pursuing you as a church together. And God, it's our, our hunger, our desire is you. And as we talk this weekend about this this theme of soul thirst. God, we pray that you'd be opening our eyes to some new things and showing us the path to life for each of our lives. We pray it in your name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today um, about noon. And uh, this day uh, started for her kind of fairly normal. Uh, she started uh, this morning, she woke up early. Uh, she did some chores around the house. She, uh, she made breakfast for her boyfriend as she often does. Uh, but now it's almost noon, and it's time for her to go out on one of her frequent errands. And so she's about, she's heading out the door. She grabs her stuff, and she's heading out the door. And as she, she's walking through the town, for whatever reason, on this particular day, her mind begins to go back and over her life. And honestly, uh, her life has not been an easy one that she's a, a woman that started off as a little girl with the hopes and dreams of many of her classmates, many of the other girls that she knew. She dreamed that one day she would grow up, she would meet a handsome man, and that they would get married and start a life together. They would have a family, and that they would grow old together. But the fact of the matter is, her life has not gone that way. In fact, her life romantically has been a disaster. And in fact, the boyfriend she's living with now, she has no idea whether that's gonna last or whether they have a future together. She's kind of bounced from one relationship to another throughout her life, and it's left her empty, it's left her hungry, it's left her wanting more. And little does she know on this day as she heads out her door that within about an hour, her life is going to change forever. Well, today we are continuing this series that we've been in for the last couple months uh, that's called Signs, A Path to Life. And for those of you who are brand new, whether it's you're here in our worship center, outside, or even online, uh, I want to welcome you. This is a series about Jesus. It's actually an in-depth study of the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest friends, confidants, followers, a man we call John or the Apostle John. And what John is doing in, in turn is he's inviting us to join him on a journey as he shares with us his firsthand experiences with Jesus, what he taught, what he did. And in this story of his life that he's telling, he's, he's kind of zooming in, focusing in on seven specific supernatural signs that Jesus uh, performed over the three years that they were together that help us understand who Jesus is and why he came and uh, the path to life for each of us. 
And so if you've been here the last, last week when Dre was teaching, uh, it's still very early in the life and teaching ministry of Jesus. He's not gone north yet. He's not opened his large public ministry up in the area that we call the Galilee. He's still in the south. He's recently traveled south to Jerusalem uh, with his first disciples for the Passover. While he was there, he had this famous conversation with this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi named Nicodemus about the new birth. And then and then after that, uh, uh, Jesus is going to take his men, and as we saw last week, he's going to leave Jerusalem. He's going to go to the east, out to the Jordan River, down in the Jordan River Valley, very dry kind of desert area, where John the Baptist is still operating. He's still out there calling the nation to repentance. He's still baptizing people, preparing them for the coming of Messiah. And so Jesus is going to go out and be reunited with his friend, his relative, this great prophet, John the Baptist. And uh, some of Jesus' first disciples, you remember, they were originally disciples of John the Baptist. We saw that in chapter 1. And some of them, they're going to pick up where they left off, and they're going to begin kind of baptizing some people as well, as more and more people are coming to be baptized. But this is going to put Jesus and his small little band of followers, it's going to put them on the radar of the religious elite of the nation. They're going to be becoming more and more concerned about him, and so it's beginning to be a little bit hot for Jesus in the south. And so he's going to decide it's time for him to go north and to travel up to where he grew up in the Galilee, where he is about to launch his major public ministry. And so that's where we pick up the story today. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up. We're going to turn to uh, John chapter 4. So in John chapter 4, John uh, starts off, he said, "Now, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees, one of these uh, kind of leading religious groups, they, they, they had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, than John the Baptist. So, so Jesus, uh, he, he's rising on, the, on the, kind of the radar of the national leaders. They're getting concerned about him. Uh, and, they, and so um, they heard he's baptizing more disciples than, than John the Baptist. Although, in fact, John puts in this kind of sidebar that it wasn't really Jesus who was baptizing. It was his disciples doing the baptizing. And so Jesus decides it's time to go north. So he's going to leave Judea, and he's going to head back to Galilee. Now, when you're studying the Bible, it's often important, not always, but it's often important to understand the geography of the land so you can picture better what's happening. And so this week, I put a, a map there in your handout, and uh, we're in this section called Signs Living Water. And I want to just uh, orient you to the land. This will be very helpful as we go along today. So... We're going to do a little map work here. So I want you to look sort of in the center of the map, um, kind of from right to left, but down in the lower third, and I want you to find the city of Jerusalem. This is kind of small. Uh, if you have poor eyesight, you might want to take a picture and make it big. But I want you to find Jerusalem. Can you find Jerusalem? Do you have it? You got it? Okay, so underline. We're just going to underline a few things. We're going to pretend like Dre's teaching a map, and so we're going to underline everything. So... We're going to underline, highlight, circle, you know, whatever. Uh, Jerusalem. Uh, that, so that's the spiritual capital of the nation, right? Now, right below that, you'll see in all caps a larger area called Judea. 
So in the land of Israel at this time, there are three major sort of areas or provinces that we're gonna, we're gonna run into. The first is Judea, that's in the south. If you go straight north, about an inch, you're gonna hit all caps and you're gonna come to Samaria. Do you see that? This is the second major area. So underline that, circle it, highlight it, whatever. Now we're gonna go another inch up and a little bit to the right, and you're gonna see the next all caps, you see Galilee. Right? See that? So, okay, so that's the three major areas from south to north. Uh, to the right of Galilee, you see the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. And if you go to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, you see a squiggly line coming out of it. That's the River Jordan, right? So the River Jordan is going to go from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee all the way down, squiggle down to the Dead Sea. It's going to empty in the Dead Sea. And when you get to the Dead Sea, you're going to see a city there, a little town called Bethany. Now, the, the reality is we don't know where Bethany was for sure, but that's where the map, maker, map, map makers are guessing, and so we're going we're gonna to underline that, all right? So, so here's what's happening. In the opening chapters, Jesus has traveled in, uh, in, in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2. He's traveled from the north to Gal- in the, up in Galilee. He's traveled down to Jerusalem for the Passover. We saw it in chapter 2. He did some miracles there. He has this conversation with a man named Nicodemus there, And then after that, he's going to go back to the Jordan River. So back to the right on your map, to the top of the Dead Sea, to the area near Bethany, where John is baptizing. As he's baptizing there, he's becoming more and more popular. His name is rising. The religious leaders are getting concerned. He doesn't want him to get into a conflict with the religious leaders right now. So he is going to head north to the more uh, backward part of the country where he grew up, called Galilee. Now... There's a couple ways you can go north from the Dead Sea. You can either go, uh, there's a road going up the Jordan River Valley that you can go. You can head up that way, kind of the eastern side of the Jordan River. Today would be, we'd call the land of Jordan. Or you can go up more the center of the country. In the center of the country, uh, there's there's a mountain range that goes through the center of the country from north to south. And so it's, it's sort of a ridge route. And along that ridge route, it's a very famous ancient road called the Patriarch's Way, all right? Now, that's the way Jesus is going to go. He's going to go right straight up through Patriarch's Way. And if you go up through there, if you go about halfway in the map, almost right in the center of the map, you find a little dot called Sychor. Do you see that? Okay, circle that. That's where our action is happening today. By the way, that Patriarch's Way, the, the Roman, uh, Jewish Roman historian Josephus that was writing in the first century, he said it was about 70 or 80 miles from Galilee to Judea on the Patriarch's Way. It would take the normal traveler about three days. Uh, okay, so, so Jesus is going to head north on the Patriarch's Way, and now let's go back to the storyline. Right? So in verse 3, so he left Judea, right, you know, in the south, he, and he's going to go back to Galilee in the north, where he's from. But he has to go through the middle, which is Samaria. So he comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Sychar. All right, so there we are. And uh, it's near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Now, a little background. Uh, some of you will know this, some of you are new. Uh, but uh, who's the father of the Jewish nation? Abraham, good, good. Not a trick question. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't trust this guy. Uh, Adam? Uh, Noah? Um, 
Yeah, Abraham's the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham has a son whose name is? Isaac. Isaac has a son whose name is? Jacob. His name is later changed by God to Israel, one who wrestles with God, right? So you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We call these the patriarchs. All right, that's why this road is named after them because if you go back to Genesis, they're traveling up and down this road a lot. And so what John is telling us is back in the day that uh, Jacob had given, Jacob had 12 sons, right? We call them the 12 sons of Israel. It became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was named Joseph, his next to youngest son. And John says that, hey, back in the day, Jacob gave Joseph, who was his favorite, a plot of land near this town of Sychar. But there was also a very famous well there. Jacob dug a well there 2,000 years before Jesus shows up. And this well was still giving out great water for the city. It was their water supply. They're very proud of this well because it's tied to the patriarchs. It's tied to Jacob. Uh, It's interesting because if you go to Israel today, you can still go to this well. And this well is still producing great water and it's 100 feet deep today which would have been even deeper then. And you say, have you been there? I have not. You say, why not? Because it's in Palestinian-controlled area. I, off, I wanted to go there one time. I asked our guide, hey, can I go? I want to go to Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. There's some, this is right by Sychar, by the way. Uh, and uh, there's some great archaeology. Could, could I take a group there? He said, yes, you could, but we would have to have an armored bus. I said, yeah, I don't know if people are going to go for that. I, we call it Adventure Israel, but that's a little too, that's a little, that's a little too much adventure. Right? So anyway, so back to the story. Okay, so he had to go through Samaria, verse 4. He comes to this town in Samaria called Sychar. It's near this plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, as tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Now, Catch this, quick sidebar. I want you to notice this. Jesus is what? He's tired. Uh, Any of you relate to this? Right? Jesus is tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty. Chances are they've been hiking all day. It's noon and he's he's exhausted, right? Um, This is very important for us to understand because John starts his gospel by introducing us to Jesus who was, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. But then in verse 14, remember, he said, and the word became flesh. He became one of us. And so in theology, we say that Jesus is 100% God, and he's 100% human. And this is a very important thing. And so we're going to say, like, Jesus is not just pretending to be tired. I think sometimes we think of Jesus as like a spiritual Clark Kent. (laughs) You know how Clark Kent... He pretends to be stupid. He pretends not to know. He pretends to be weak. He pretends to be kind of dorky. But really, he's just pretending because really, he's Superman. Sometimes we think of Jesus like that. He's not. Jesus is not like a spiritual Clark Kent. He's really human. He's really one of us. And so he's exhausted. And so he's going to send his men into the city to get some fast food. Right. So he's going to send them in, uh, get some hummus, get some... uh, you know, shawarma, 
Uh, there's a local little in and out shawarma shop. And um, so he sends him off. And now he's sitting on this ancient well. And he looks up. And uh, lo and behold, that's not in the text. But just lo and behold, he sees a woman coming towards him. And this woman is coming to draw water from the well. Now, this takes us back to the story we started the day with about this woman who wakes up early. She uh, does her chores. She makes breakfast for her boyfriend. Um, then she, she heads out about noon for one of her routine trips. Um, and while she's going, her mind begins to drift back on her life and how her life has not worked out. This is my version of this woman's story. We don't know everything about her, but we're going to learn next week. Not next week. Next week's Easter. Two weeks from now. We're going to learn next week that this woman has been married five times. Now, I don't need to tell you, those of you who've gone through a marriage and a divorce, a marriage and a death, you understand how painful that is one time. This woman has gone through that five times, and now she's living with a man who's not her husband, which in Samaritan culture, like Jewish culture, would label her as an immoral woman, a super sinner. Her life has not gone the way that she wanted it to go. And she's coming at noon to draw water. And we don't know this for sure, but this is a very odd time to draw water. You're going to put a bucket down in 100 or 200 feet, and you're going to pull it up. That is hard work. And because it's such hard work, most women would go to draw water either at the start of the day or in the early evening when the weather's cool. We don't know this for sure. It's possible this woman's coming now because no one else is going to be there. She doesn't have to deal with any catty women talking about her or making faces or names and vice versa. But whatever the case, Jesus looks up and he sees this woman coming. Now, she's a sketchy woman. She's an immoral woman, right? She's got a reputation. Yet Jesus is going to engage her, which honestly, if we were there, would probably raise some eyebrows. And he's going to engage her. And he's going to ask her for a drink. And this is going to shock her because when he asks her for a drink, he is crossing over a couple huge cultural, spiritual, racial divides. And the first major divide was that she's a Samaritan. And as we're going to learn, there was a deep racial, religious, social hostility between Jews and Samaritans that went back 750 years. On top of that, he's a Jewish man. She's a Samaritan woman and a woman of questionable character. And in Jewish culture for like religious Orthodox Jewish men, especially for a rabbi, you would not talk to a woman out in public, especially not alone. That would be considered very inappropriate. And yet Jesus is going to cross over these major cultural, racial, religious divides. And he's going to approach this woman. And it's going to take her back. It's going to shock her. This is not what she's surprising. Not what she's expecting. And so when 
The Samaritan woman came, verse 7, to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And John says, a little sidebar. By the way, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So John wants us to picture this. It's one-on-one time. And the Samaritan woman said to him, wait a second, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Like, what are you thinking? And John puts a little sidebar for Jews, don't associate with Samaritans. And so Jesus answered her, hey, I get it. I understand, but let me tell you something. Honestly, if the shoe was on the other foot, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I was offering, you'd be the one crossing the divide to come to me. And so Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, and and underline that, the gift of God, Jesus has come to give her a gift. It's not something she can earn or deserve. It's a gift. If you knew the gift of God and you knew who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have been the one crossing over. And he would have given you living water. Now let's talk about that term, living water, for just a minute. This is not a phrase that Jesus made up. This was a common phrase in Israel. Uh, First of all, as we'll see later today, it's a phrase used by the prophet Jeremiah. Back in Jeremiah 2, we'll look at that later. But on top of that, this was was a common term for a particular kind of water. I don't know if any of you have ever gone to Europe, but if you've gone to Europe, you're at a restaurant, you ask for water, what are they going to say? They're going to say, gas or no gas? And the first time you hear this, you say, excuse me? Like, do you want carbonated water or do you want regular water, right? So different kinds of water. Well, in Israel at this time, there were two different kinds of water. There was regular water that was water that had come from maybe a well, uh, maybe an underground cistern or reservoir, some kind of like potable water. And then, and then there was what they called living water. And living water was water that uh, had come from a fresh running water source, So, for example, it could come from a stream or it could come from a spring, but it had to be running water. And so Jesus says, you know, if you understood who I was and what I had to offer, you would have asked me and I would have given you better water than you're offering me, than than I'm asking you for. I have living water. And so she's a little skeptical because he's standing there and he's by himself and he's got no bucket and no rope and they're in the middle of the desert, in the middle of a very dry area. And so she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Remember, it's still over 100 feet today. She said, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons in life? She's very proud of this well. This well is like, if it were here in America, it'd be like a national monument. You know, this... This well is history. It's 2,000 years old. It was dug by George Washington. You know, it's like this well is not your average well. And she's very proud of this well. And she says, like, who do you think you are? That you're greater than the patriarch Jacob? And of course, the irony, as the reader, we know, yes. <laughs> In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. Yeah, we go, yes. But of course, she doesn't know that. It's really interesting 
John's gonna do this throughout this gospel. He's, he's constantly showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel and how Jesus is always greater. So do you remember back in chapter one, in the intro, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Remember that? That he was the greater tabernacle. Remember chapter two, uh, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He was the greater temple, the place where heaven meets earth. Chapter three, as Moses lifted up the snake, so I'll be, he was the greater savior, right? And now here, who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than patriarchs? John's laughing, yep, yep, he does. <laughs> and uh, Jesus, well, here's the thing. <laughs> I know you love this water, but here's the thing. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. You're gonna have to, you're gonna, you're gonna draw this water, you're gonna go home, you're gonna feed your boyfriend, you're gonna whatever, feed the aunt, whatever, but you're gonna get thirsty again. You're gonna have to come back again tomorrow. Like this water is something that doesn't really ever quench your thirst permanently. And he says, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. In fact, the water I give them, it's like magic water. <laughs> it's like when you, when you drink this water, it goes down inside of you and it becomes like a spring of water that's perpetually quenching your thirst. And in fact, he said, it's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this term, welling up, it's, it's actually much stronger in the Greek. Do you remember in Acts chapter three when Peter and John heal the lame man at the temple and he's so excited, he's leaping and jumping and praising God? That's the word. He says this water is gonna become this spring that's gonna be rising up, springing out of you and constantly quenching your thirst. And he said it's gonna, it's gonna bring you eternal life. And remember what we're learning in John. Eternal life is not just length of life. It's the quality of life, this life that we were designed to live. It's life to the full, as Jesus will say later in John 10. It's life to the full here and now, and it's life forever in the coming kingdom. And so I'm sure she is very skeptical. She's looking at him. There's, this guy's got no bucket. He's got no rope. Hey, but this is like the QVC channel. If it seems too good to be true, but sometimes you still buy it, Right? It's like, that's too good to be true, but uh, I'm not gonna like pass this offer up. And so she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here every day to draw this water. And we're gonna stop there today because Jesus is now gonna take the conversation to a whole new level. Like he's come to give her a gift, but in order to receive that gift, there's some things that have to happen in her. And he's gonna take it to a whole new level. But what I wanna focus on today is this incredible offer that Jesus makes, this claim that he makes that he has the ability to give us a, a water that would satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart. And uh, so there in your note sheet, you have a section 
that's called sign solthers. And I, I want to just kind of give you the principle that flows out of it. And then we're going to explore it some, what Jesus is promising. And we're going to come back at the end and ask a critical question. So here's the principle, you fill in the blanks, that, that what Jesus is claiming is that Jesus alone satisfies our deepest thirst. Jesus alone has this capacity to satisfy the deepest thirst of, like he alone has this living water, right? Uh, now remember, when we say Jesus, we need to remember which Jesus we're talking about. Remember how, how John has defined Jesus for us in chapter one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him. Nothing has been created apart from him. This is the claim that this word who became flesh is the only one who has the ability to quench the deepest thirst of the human heart through a relationship with him and through the life that he has come to give us. Now, what we're gonna see is that Jesus is going to make this claim many, many times in many different settings. As we watch Jesus over the next three years, we're gonna watch him uh, in one-on-one -on -one conversations like with this woman. We're gonna watch him in the city uh, with, uh, of Jerusalem talking to the religious leaders. We're gonna see him uh, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. We're gonna see him uh, feeding 5,000. We're gonna see him making these similar claims to different groups and different individuals throughout at different points in his ministry. But when you boil it all down, in many ways, it's the same claim. It's just that every time he uses a different metaphor, it spins the diamond and it catches the light in a little different way and helps you understand a little bit more of what this life that he's come to bring us is about. So for example, Think with me, in chapter three, he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you, if you wanna be part of this life that's coming, if you wanna be part of the kingdom, that you have to be born again. Yeah. That, that something has to happen to you that's so supernatural, that's so profound. It's like starting life over again. It's like a whole new life. It's, it comes with its own set of DNA. And when we get to chapter six, he'll be teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum and he'll say that I am the bread of life and I've come down from heaven to give my life for the world. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. When we get to chapter eight, he'll say to a crowd in Jerusalem, I'm the light of the world. This world's in darkness. You were born in darkness, and I'm the light. I've come to light it up and show you the way out. And the one who follows me will, will no longer live in the dark. You'll have the light of life. And we get to chapter 10. He'll be speaking to the crowd in Jerusalem, and he'll say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And we get to chapter 11, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead is his seventh and final sign. He'll say, I am the resurrection and the life. 
the person who comes to me will enter into a new life here and now, but, but they will never die. They're going to live forever. When the time comes, I will raise them from the dead. Right? And so in many different ways, many different word pictures, many different metaphors, he, he spins this life that he's come, and with each different one, but he's making a similar claim. And today, he spins the diamond and he says, I have come to give you life that will satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart. I've come to give you living water. Now, this term, as I said, living water is not a new term. Jesus didn't coin this term. In fact, he's actually quoting, very likely, he's quoting a famous passage from the prophet Jeremiah. And so in Jeremiah 2, let me set this up. In Jeremiah 2, God is taking the nation of Israel to task. He's challenging them. And he says, when, when I first brought you out of slavery in Egypt, and we, we came to Mount Sinai, and, and you entered into a formal a covenant with me, much like marriage, and you would be my God, you, I would be your God, you'll be my people, and, and I proposed to you, and you said, I do. And you were like a young bride that would follow me through the wilderness. You'd follow me anywhere, and you followed me through the wilderness. But he said, but now you're in the promised land, and it's like you, you forgot those wedding vows, and you're running after other lovers, other gods. And he says, it's left you dry. It's left you thirsty. And he uses this powerful picture of living water. It's there in your note sheet, in Jeremiah 2. God says to Israel, my people have committed two sins, two big mistakes. So their first sin is they've forsaken me, the spring of what? Living water. Israel was supposed to drink deeply of the living water from the living God. And he said, but they've, they've left that spring and they've, the second mistake is they've, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You say, well, what do you, what do you mean? Well, Israel is a very dry land. It's much like Southern California. Uh, imagine what Southern California would be like if we didn't have the water from the Colorado River. Like, we, this is a very dry land. And Israel is like that. And so in ancient times, during the rainy season, you would do all you could to catch and divert as much water as you could to save it for when you had no water. And one of the ways they would do this is that they would dig these very deep stone cisterns in the ground out of the stone, and they would divert water into it. And so that in the, in the dry season, you could go and get water. Now, of course, this water, you know, they, they didn't have chemicals. I mean, it's going to get full of bacteria and moss, and it's not going to be great water, but it's going to keep you alive. But the greatest danger of saving water in a cistern was sometimes you would go, when the, when the, when the dry season came, you'd go to, to get your water, and a crack had developed in the wall of the cistern, and you would go to get that life-giving water, and all your water would be gone, and you would be in great danger. And so, so God says to Israel, you've made these two big mistakes. You, you have left me your spring of living water and you've gone and run after these other gods. It's like digging out cisterns, but they've not held water. And it's left you dry. It's left you thirsty in danger. 
And so Jesus picks up this image and uses it in a similar way. And he says to this woman, he said, you, you come here every day to this well, but this water will never satisfy your thirst. You have to keep coming back for more. But he says, I want to offer you something, a new kind of life that can satisfy you, the deepest thirst of the human heart at the, at the deepest level. And so he makes, he's making quite the offer. And as we've seen, she says, okay, I, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I'm in. Tell me how I can get this water so I have to come here every day. And like I say, we'll come back to that next week. But for today, I want to ask a very critical question for each of us. And it's there in your note sheet. And it said, signs the crucial question. And here's the question. Where are you drinking? Where are you going to satisfy the deepest thirst of your heart, Amen. of the human heart? You've seen today that, that in life we've got a choice. We can either go, we can go to Jacob's well, kind of like everyone else does. We, we can dig out our own cisterns. We can run after other gods to sa- try to satisfy this deepest thirst of the human heart. Or we can go to Jesus for this gift of new life, what he calls living water, that he claims it can alone has the capacity to satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart. Now, when we ask this question, I think we need to ask it at a couple different levels. First, we need to ask this question at the level of this woman that was talking with Jesus. This is the question that, in, in essence, Jesus asks each of us when we first start our journey with him. That when we first come to Jesus, whether we think of it in these words or this particular way, that that this is the offer that Jesus is making to us. Come to me and I will give you living water and that I alone have this, I alone as the creator of the cosmos have the ability to satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. And you've been looking to satisfy that longing in all the wrong places. And Jesus invites us into this relationship where he promises to give us this new life that will last forever, that will satisfy this deepest longing. And so when we first come to Jesus, this is the decision, we, we, this is the question we need to ask, and the, the question we need to answer is where are we drinking and are we willing to trust Jesus to give us this new life? To, to give him our life and to say, yes, come into my life and I trust you. I give my life to you. I, I surrender my life. I, I want to follow you. I, I believe that you alone have these words of eternal life. Right? So, that's a, so, so for some of us here, For some of us, maybe you're on the patio. For some of you online, that maybe you're at the very beginning of your journey with Jesus and you're sensing him calling to you and he's making this offer and the question is, will you respond? Will you listen to this? Will you respond to this offer? Will you ask Jesus to give you this new life? But I think we also need to ask this question at a different level. We need to ask this, this question as followers of Jesus because the reality is, like Israel, 
we can sometimes get off track, can't we? And we, we come to Jesus, we give our lives to Jesus, we begin to drink of that living water, our lives are transformed, but somewhere along the line, sometimes without even realizing it, we get off track and we begin running after other gods. We begin digging out other cisterns that we believe will satisfy this deepest thirst. And for some of us, I think we're all wired differently, and for some of us, you say, what does this look like? Well, for some of us, we, we start to believe that the key to our life, the key to our happiness, is finding the right person. That if I could just find the right person, kind of like this woman who's gone through five husbands and living with a man, she's looking for the right man. If I could just find the right man. And for some of us, this is the deepest temptation of our heart. That we, we believe that if we just find the right romantic relationship, this will satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart. For others of us, it's, it's maybe not the, the romance. Maybe it's if I could just have kids. I just want to be a mom. I just want to be a dad. And if we just have kids and a great family. For others, it might be friends. But, but our ultimate value in life, which is kind of the definition of a God, is, is if I could just find the right people, the right person. And sometimes we're even willing to compromise our relationship with Jesus to pursue that person. I know he's not a believer, but maybe he'll come to Christ. Yeah, I know he's really not, yeah, I, there's some red flags, but I think I can work on him or work on her. Can I tell you something? One of, the, one of the greatest temptations that has derailed more believers than probably anything else is romantic love. The belief that if I can just find the right person, maybe you're married. My, my spouse doesn't understand me, but this person does. And if I just pursue this person, they make me happy. Deep inside, we're, we're digging a cistern. It's going to look good at start, but it's, it's going to leave us dry. You know, for other people, it's not the person, it's, it's the possessions. For, for some of we're all wired. For some of you, you're like, ah, that's not me. But for some of us, just having that right car, having that right house, that American dream, that boat, that uh, cabin, that we, we're really driven by, if we just get life together, just get the right, right dirt bike, Oh, uh, yeah, this is a temptation for me. If I just get the right adventure motorcycle, that KTM 890R with rallies, and, like if I just get that, right, then life would be good. <laughs> for others, it's pleasure, you know. For some of you, like, this is not you, but for others of you, it's, it's the pleasure. It's, uh, it's just... It's just uh, 
it's just straight out sex. It's uh, maybe the party life, the substance life. Um, then how many of us in this room could, would say either now or at a time in our life or maybe for the online that, hey, we were living for the weekend. We were living for that next, that, ne- that next night with her, that next hit, that next whatever. Living for pleasure. For others, it's not pleasure. For others, it's popularity. Hey, I want to be with the in crowd. I want to be woke. I want to be politically correct. If I could just be accepted, if I could just be the big man on campus, if I could just be the popular person, or for some of us, it's just, it's not that high standard. It's just like, if I could just not be rejected. If I could just not be rejected, then I'd be happy. You know, for others, it's uh, some position or power. How many of us have been driven, if I could just, win the state championship, if I could just make all pro, if I could just make partner, if I could just become the vice president, if I just get this position. You know, for others, it's some other pursuit. We could go on forever. Hey, I want to visit every, every capital of the world. I want to travel. I want whatever. But there's, whenever we make something else in life, our ultimate value, we're digging a cistern. Can I tell you something? There is nothing in creation that has the capacity to satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart other than the creator. And that's what Jesus is saying. And this is why he's come. And can I tell you this too, is that Jesus is clear that when he talks about this living water, he's not talking about a one-time experience. You know, sometimes in American Christianity, we put so much emphasis on the decision to follow Jesus and, hey, when did you get saved? We forget that getting saved is just the start of the relationship. It's not the end of the story. Hey, when did you get saved? Back in 76. It was so awesome. I came to Jesus and it was so exciting. What's happening now? Nothing, but I'm safe. I've been running on fumes since then, living off my past. But let me tell you my testimony. And sometimes we visualize it this way as if the living water is just getting saved. Catch what Jesus said. He said, I will give you living water. But when you drink it, it's going to become a spring. Amen. Speaking of the, the Holy Spirit, that spring, it's going to become a spring. It's going to rise up. Can I tell you something? If you're not more excited about Jesus today than you were then, whenever then is, Amen. you're drinking from the wrong well. Because as followers of Jesus, our passion is never designed to go backwards. That well is going to be leaping up and is calling to us. And when that growth, when that passion, when that life is not growing in us, 
and we don't love Jesus more today than we did then, when that excitement about his word, about time, when that's not growing, we're drinking at the wrong well. So the question is, where are you drinking? You know, here at Rocky Peak, several times we've had this very gifted couple, the counselors, Les and Leslie Parrott, come and speak here, the kind of marriage specialists. We use their material in a, what we call our Symbus class, or Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, a premarital course. Many years ago, I read one of their books called Relationships. And there in your note sheet, they just put it so well. He said, there is in all of us, at the very center of our lives, an aching, a burning in our heart, I'm calling it a thirst, that is deep and it's insatiable. Most often, we try to quench that yearning with a human relationship. We try to fill in the gap of our existence with a friend or a lover, but no human relationship, no matter how wonderful, can ever complete us. Why? Because human beings can never make us whole. It is God who satisfies the ultimate longing for belonging and gives us meaning in our lives. Can I say it again? Can I say it again? There is nothing in creation, no person, no pleasure, no possession, no pursuit, no position, no power that can satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. There's nothing in creation that's a capacity to satisfy the deepest desire, thirst of the human heart other than the creator. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful to be here and just, man, this, this, this banquet of your word this is like this buffet, you know, that, that we have in the Gospel of John. We just keep coming at us from one angle, then the next angle. Hey, you didn't catch it here about being born again? Well, let me put it this way. Let's talk about water of life. And hey, you didn't catch that? Let's talk about bread of life, you know? Hey, you missed that? Let's talk about light of life. It's like you're gonna just keep coming at us because you know that we're so slow to learn this. They were so quick as fallen human beings to dig out cisterns run after other gods that can never satisfy us, leave us thirsty. God, may we, may you give us the power by your Holy Spirit to see this gift of life. And may we respond as the Samaritan woman did today. Lord, give me this water that I might come here every day and thirst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.